Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski do a full recap of JCK Las Vegas. Then you'll hear some attendee interviews Victoria and Rob recorded live from the show floor. My name is Rob Bates. I'm the news director of JCK and JCK Online. And I'm Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK and JCK Online. And I'm actually speaking from my home office in Los Angeles. Co-host on the coast. That's right. That's right. I returned from Vegas last Tuesday, June 4th. I feel like I could still sleep for days. I'm still recovering also. Yeah, it it rocked me. I mean, Vegas always feels like a week in a black hole that's, (laughs) you know, unrelated to anything else going on in the world. No news seeps in, nothing, no light practically, Mm -hmm. at least no natural light. It's very fun. It's very demanding. And honestly, this year felt almost, you know, times 10. I I don't know if that's just because we were in that sort of our new old home at the Sands Expo in Venetian, or if it was just a a full-on Vegas as they all are. What did you think, Rob? Was it, did it feel sort of more intense for you this year or kind of the same? You know, they're always very intense. And especially, you know, it used to be a lot longer. So now that it's a little bit more compressed, it it definitely feels like a compressed couple days. It took more than I expected to adjust, but once I adjusted, it felt very natural to be back at the Sands, and you don't feel like you kind of lost anything from going to the Mandalay to the Sands. I mean, it's a perfectly nice place. You're kind of more in the heart of the action, and it just and it's easier to get around. So, the the first day, like finding my way out of the Venetian was was a little. Uh, I think it took like 20 minutes to get out of there, just because <laughs> you know I was like with boats, and I, I don't know where where they had me, but. Uh, you know, once I got out of there, it was okay. The the wonderful thing about um, being, I stayed at the Palazzo, and I think people staying at the Venetian more or less had the same experience, was that I could be in my room and 10 minutes later be at an appointment on the show floor, which at Mandalay Bay, that, that was impossible. It was really at least 20 minutes to walk from where you were to, you know, get anywhere on the show floor. So there was just an economy that I really appreciated since you are packing a schedule so tight By that measure, I could also be across the street at the Wynn if I needed to be to meet other jewelers to have appointments. I felt like I could be there within literally 10 or 15 minutes from my room. So there was something to that because it just allowed me to get places quicker and also just took down the stress a little bit. Not to mention, and I don't know, Rob, how much of these you enjoyed, but I definitely enjoyed the restaurants and the bars in the Venetian Resort, that whole complex from the Dorsey and the Rosina great cocktail spaces to Mott 32, that super hyped up Chinese restaurant in the Palazzo on the um, edge of the casino, which just had super tasty food. So that always adds, you know, the fun kind of entertainment, which I think after a long day, everybody deserves to have a nice meal and a couple of good drinks. I uh, stayed at Treasure Island, which was, uh, it felt very familiar, but very new. Like you could tell the place was very much upgraded and very different from how it was. It felt great. I was actually very impressed at how easy it was to get around. I did get lost a couple of times as well, mostly just trying to find my way to some of the ballrooms and meeting rooms. But honestly, the maps were great and the app was great. So, you know, there was a whole feature that was like a little ways for the JCK show. So, you know, if you plugged in where you were headed, the JCK mobile app could literally direct you, you know, through, through the maze. So I found that very helpful. And did you do anything fun? There's a great 
old school steakhouse um, just on the end of Fremont Street, or maybe it's the beginning technically called the Oscars. And it's right across from like the golden, it's not the golden nugget, but it's some old school casino. I mean, the kind of casinos where, you know, the, the buy-in is like a buck. But Oscars is a really great steakhouse with delicious steak and, you know, awesome martinis with blue cheese stuffed olives and, you know, the whole shebang. What's nice about it is it doesn't, it's not overly crowded. So you don't feel like it's super sceny. It's just a really nice spot to sink into an old booth, a tufted, comfy, kind of red leather booth. And just feel like you're a little bit of a going back to the Rat Pack days. That was great for for my first night. And on our last night, our JCK's longtime sales associate based in Poland, Marek, he and his longtime girlfriend, Dominika, who also works with JCK, had a surprise wedding. So in wow. Mark, Mark Smelzer, our publisher, was there. They got married at the uh, famous wedding chapel in Vegas where lots of celebrities have tied the knot. And we had all had a dinner planned. This was on the Monday night on the last day of the show on June 3rd. And we showed up at the dinner and lo and behold, we were unwittingly there as guests at a wedding reception. Did they plan it or they just was like, well, it's Vegas, we should get married? There was a plan, but it just was hidden from the rest of us. But it was really sweet and lovely. And, um, you know, for those of you who are going to get our July, August issue, you'll see a picture from um, from the reception. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was a great way to cap what I thought was a, a really good show. In some ways, not the most dramatic show. But I'd love to hear what your thoughts are, Rob, on just the show in general, what you felt made an impression on you at JCK. I thought it was a good show. I mean, I noticed they they were more selective with attendees. The traffic seemed to be a little lower, but apparently it was much better quality buyers. And you have to figure that retailers who've hung in this long, a lot of them are probably pretty top quality retailers who have been able to survive all the kind of ups and downs that we've seen in this industry. So, I mean, obviously the talk of the show, and it's ironic because the talk of the show last year was lab-grown diamonds, and that Mm -hmm. section seemed to be pretty exciting and jamming and a lot of stuff was going on. I think people were pretty lively and and, and in good moods. Uh, you You know, business, obviously, some people had great shows, some people, you know, had average shows. But overall, I think the mood was pretty good, and I think people were... People were definitely thinking, like people had, there was a lot of ideas and there was a lot of new initiatives and people definitely felt like they know that there's a challenge out there and now they're trying to find out ways to meet the challenge. And I think that's important. And certainly, I mean, there was a whole bunch of traceability plans Mm -hmm. and programs and I, I think that's in part due to lab grown. But I think that people were, were perhaps thinking about things in a way that, they haven't before. And I think that I think that's good. I heard generally really positive things about the Sands. I think the adjustment period was very, very quick. I think going forward, I think people are going to be happy to be back at the Sands. They're always going to be saying, oh, I wish I was back at Mandalay. <laughs> it was yeah. a good show. And the, the, the weather actually was, was reasonably nice, which is good because it's not like that kind of sauna uh, Vegas. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think all in all, it was it was very seamless. When I said earlier that I didn't think it was the most dramatic show, I think part of that is just because these are conversations that kind of are, are hitting a peak, but we've heard these conversations in the industry before. We've certainly heard the lab-grown conversation. Right. It's sort of re- reaching, I almost hesitate to say fever pitch because that indicates a kind of an anxiety that sure is still there, but there's also a lot of acceptance and a great deal of 
you know, that lab grown pavilion on the show floor was, you know, there was a ton of people there and a lot of people talking about it. A lot of jewelers that had formerly been with, you know, natural diamond companies jumping ship and taking positions with new lab grown startups. So I think that there's just this conversation is, is evolving, is maturing, is grad, you know, graduating to something, a new level. And so it seemed to lack the drama of earlier years when there was such a sort of a clash or more controversy around this new lab grown product that's entering the market. And same with that sort of tracing sustainability conversation. I think we're seeing it mature and evolve and it feels almost like something that people understand is sort of a default for what we should be doing as an industry is understanding where our products come from and how they make their way through the supply chain. I attended a a packed seminar that GIA put on on sustainability and it had a really interesting actually presentation by a professor you'd quoted in your diamond ethics feature, Rob, the one that ran in our June issue about whether or not you can call lab-grown diamonds ethical or ecologically sort of more beneficial, I suppose, than, than mine diamonds. He was part of this GIA seminar, as were a few other people like a representative of the Akavango Diamond Company in Botswana and uh, Nadia Swarovski. But, you know, again, it was a packed seminar. There was tons of people there, but it's not like they were telling us things we hadn't heard. We've heard all of this stuff. Right. It, is an, it is a deepening conversation, but nothing dramatic that made me perk up and think, oh, wow, this is new, because it wasn't. Listen, as somebody who's been covering this for a while, I can tell you that for a long time, a lot of people said, well, we don't really need to think about these things, about sustainability. They Did consumers care? I mean, this was a huge conversation in the diamond industry for a long time. Do consumers care? Is it worth really bothering? And I think now it is clear that consumers do care and it's you can't just do the minimum. You have to do extra and it should, in fact, be a default. It should be something that every company cares about and is working on. I mean, there were so many conversations about traceability and sustainability, and I think, th- I think that was great. The lab grown was interesting because I think, in a way, both sides of the, and I hate to use this word, but divide or the debate or the issue, both were feeling very confident because, first of all, lab-grown sales were doing very, very well. There's no question about it. And the people who had gone into lab-grown, most of them were, were pretty happy that they, they'd done so. However, you talk to people who represent the natural industry and are kind of have taken this public stand against lab-growns, and they can point to the fact that the prices have really started to fall because production is ramping up. And I think the thing is, even though demand is accelerating, we we still have seen some of these price declines, right? So the fact that even in this booming market, which it clearly is a booming market, you're starting to see these price declines, you know, says to many people what they've predicted is that eventually the price of these things will fall. Lab-grown section. I'm with Mr. Ben Hackman with uh, Diamond DNA and a lab-grown consultant. You go all over the world. Yes, I do. Uh, looking at lab-grown, thinking about lab-grown. Yes. Somebody told me, I don't know, maybe it was you, maybe it was somebody else, that since lab-growns are priced differently, that a 1.5 is kind of the benchmark for a lab-grown, whereas for for a natural mind, it's one carat. Is that is that basically? No. That right? See, uh, uh, retailers for years they work on a structure of programs and and right. and. and, and the structure will always give you a carat, 
carat quarter, mm -hmm. carat and a half, a two carat price points. Mm -hmm. In the lab grown, what has happened is in the past year and a half, people stayed away from a carat and a half. Mm -hmm. That's what I've mentioned earlier. Uh, but now with Signet started selling on uh, James Allen, suddenly the 1.5 category is hot. We, we couldn't touch it before. Nobody wanted to touch right, it. Right, right. But huge demand from 175 to 199. Mm -hmm. It's the hottest uh, price point right now. So market. last year, I mean, Lightbox changed so much. Where do you think we're going to be next year? Um, at the show. I, at the show, I, I think it's, we, we know you mentioned it in your article, yeah. the, the patent war, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to linger because there's few players in the market with patents that, but I don't think it's going to lead anywhere. It's just going to create a little chaos and scare and it's going to die down. Mm -hmm. I think that the future is, is going towards transparency and, and it's really, I'm, I'm seeing it at the show. People, like, people are coming in and asking for as grown diamonds. No more enhancements. It's getting harder and harder. Why does that matter for, for people? Because, because the treatment is first undisclosed, and you don't know what kind of treatment it is. You don't know what you're getting. The labs are not helping, not GIA or not IGI. Mm -hmm. no, no one discloses treatments. Uh, people say they will, but as of the last GIA presentation uh, uh, this morning, they're not doing anything. Right, uh, right, right. So the previous uh, report about them disclosing growth type and treatment type, it's its actually not happening. None of the other labs are actually going anywhere, doing mm -hmm. anything that has to do with transparency right. uh, of the product. But it's in the works. I know a few people that are actually new new upcoming labs that are going to hit the market probably uh, in the next six months that they will do what the market is not doing. So wake up call for the existing labs that are dealing with it. And, and as far as country of origin. Uh, it's important. Yes, yeah. country of origin. And again, more important, disclosure on the treatment. Mm -hmm. What type of growth it is, mm -hmm. and exactly where it is, where it came from. Uh, was yeah, it smuggled into the country? Was it grown in a country? Who paid duties on it? Uh, all these things have to, you know, uh, be in perspective. Because people say, okay, this is clean origin, this is good origin, and you have no idea what the origin is. Exactly. You, you know what the production method yes, is, yes. but not the origin. And and we've talked about uh, uh, the eco friendliness and, yeah, and the yeah. consumption of, of energy and and, and, uh, and then the environment. I've started researching and I've traveled to India and other places around the world. And yes, there, there are people that are using windmill you know, for power and, uh, and creating methane out of uh, rubbish and, and, and generating uh, nitrogen and hydrogen out of different things. And uh, yes, it, it actually exists. But again, there's no, there's no origin. Everybody. No, there's, there's yeah. no disclosure. Right, 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 right. You don't know who's doing what and yeah. uh, who's going where. And, uh, but there's an awareness. I don't know if you went to the Lightbox presentation. Well, not to their presentation, but I had an appointment with them in one of the ballroom spaces upstairs at the Venetian. So what was the presentation all about? So it was just their marketing and their market research. And I've seen a lot of Lightbox presentations, and I wasn't sure if I was going to go to this one, but I was actually... It was. I was very impressed. The the they seem to have put a lot of thought into the marketing, into the presentation, and I think last year a lot of people thought that De Beers by kind of by doing this aggressive pricing was deliberately trying to push the pricing down. Right. That was mm. that was the theory that they were deliberately trying to push the pricing down, and maybe that was something they were trying to do, but. This time, you also got the sense that they feel the pricing will come down anyway. They believe that's going to happen, right? 
And mm-hmm. they feel that when it does happen, when it does become more of a, a fashion type product at a below $1,000 price point, they'll be well situated because they've had a couple of years to build their brand. So in a way, they're kind of responding to what they see as inevitable. Maybe It may not be inevitable, but they see it as inevitable that eventually the price will come down. And when the price does come down, they'll be the best situated because they'll already be targeting the market that those diamonds will be the best suited for. Now, again, whether this will actually happen, and it certainly may not happen, but clearly we are seeing some price declines and decreases. And that's their kind of quote-unquote theory of the case. And I think mm-hmm. to some extent, I was never 100% convinced, but I think to some extent it's happening, and we'll just have to see if it keeps happening. So, I mean, I had conversations. I had one person tell me, oh, mine diamonds are going to go away in five years. And I had another person tell me the lab-grown diamonds are going to be this kind of niche item in five years. So that's th- there was such this dramatic difference in, awesome. how, in how people saw what's going to happen in the future. But I definitely see that we are getting to a point where the two products are perhaps a bit more separated. And I don't know when that's going to happen, but it does look like the, the predictions of people who said the prices will fall, that, that definitely seems to be happening. Well, I'll tell you this. I, I did, as mentioned, sit through a Lightbox product presentation, and they've really evolved. You know, they began last year with a really simple line, simple solitaire pendants and stud earrings, nothing that would ever really scream design. But they've grown, and they've they've got a whole new collection out, and it's got stacking rings. And full dis- disclosure, editors who were attending these were able to take a stacking ring home. So I have a little stacking ring with a triangular cut blue diamond in a 10 karat gold, which actually looks really fashionable and stacks really well with my other fine rings. You know, I have an aquamarine ring that I've worn for years that it looks great with. So they have stepped it up and it looks really good. And I think if they keep up with fashion and design and they have this product that retails for less than a thousand dollars, they are well-placed to capture a consumer who's looking for that fun product. I, I think this is a a refrain they've used. So pardon me if the rest of you all have heard this, but it's kind of the difference between uh, what I heard them say is, you know, the difference between wearing your mine diamond wedding ring to the beach versus your fun fashion light box stacking ring. You know, you'd think about taking the first one off. You'd take your engagement ring off if you're going to go into the water maybe and put it somewhere safe for so you don't lose it versus the stacking lab grown light box ring. You know, so what? You lose it. Oh, well, you get another one. You know, it's it's your fun fashion piece and you want to look good in the water. Right. And honestly, I could see that because they're really fun, but they're not very expensive. Still, if you lose a $200 ring, most people are going to be a little upset. You know, you, lose your, you lose your, like, uh, whatever it is, $700 phone, you know, you're pretty bummed. True. And I am definitely in that camp. I don't, I, I've actually misplaced some $40 earrings that I bought in Vegas and I'm mad and furious about it. So... <laughs> It's just not the same weight as losing, you know, a many thousand dollar engagement ring. I, I don't know. I think I think it was a it, it kind of opened my eyes to the theory of it, which is that we feel this is where it's going to end up. It's not necessarily about pushing it in that direction, though. I know some people feel that they are trying to push it in that direction, but it's feel that this is where the race will end and we want to be ahead of everybody. I have to say I was really impressed by the Lightbox presentation. I've been to a lot of De Beers presentations and 
let's just say some have impressed me more than others, but I thought this was really a nice job. Naveen Nagpal, Omi Gems, and Omi Privé. What have people been gravitating gravitating to here at the show? People are loving colored stones. People see, you know, the differentiation in colored stones and in the designs that we do. So we've actually had a really good show across the board. There's not really anything. I think people are willing to take more risks. So some of our more edgy designs and some more rare gemstones and things that people shied away from a few years ago. Now they're coming back and you know they're they're going more towards the uh, more interesting pieces and the pieces that tell more stories. Yeah, and I, in terms of stories, I know you have this wonderful window display here. Tell us a little bit about uh, what it is and what you were inspired and, and why to create it. Well, I think the you know, to understand value and to really appreciate appreciate gemstones, we like to you know present when we're discussing with clients about where gemstones come from and how difficult it is to get beautiful gemstones and how many you know, tons of earth need to be moved and the whole story we tell and all the way through the process of how we design pieces and and all the way through to the to the collectors. So I wanted to figure out how do you how do we do that visually? So me and my team got together and we came up with a, a window display to visually show the path that a gem takes. So it's called a gemstone journey and it's from the rough gemstones all the way through all the cutting and sorting and design process and then showing how it um, wins awards and, and gets into the retail store and eventually to collectors. So we wanted to kind of show how many hands and how many people are involved in this process and how much of a labor of love it is. And you did it using cute little figures. So tell us about exactly uh, some, of the, some of the actual elements that make up the display. Well, we, have, uh, we built, we built a, a miniature mine to show where the stones come from and have a lot of the rough there. And then going through the process, we showed the natural cutting wheel that we've used and showing all the tools. But it, you know, you have all those props there, but you know, it didn't really come to life until we put little Lego men all through it to, to kind of add some whimsy and add more to the story to show that there's actually people there and who are these people and how do they do these things and that we have experts in every part in every aspect of the, of the supply chain. So great. And then uh, you did also show earlier when I swung by a beautiful three-stone ring featuring, I think it was a two-plus carat grandidiorite, a very rare gem. Has that sold? Did it get a lot of interest? Um, do you expect it to sell? Um, yeah, we actually, I was really, really hoping to have that ring ready for the show and it wasn't. So it got shipped in on the second day of the show. And right away, I mean, I was blown away myself. Usually, you know, you have the designs and I was really excited about it to begin with, but when, when it arrived, I personally was really excited about it. And I think it was definitely after the second day, it was our most looked at and talked about peace. And everybody was uh, very excited and blown away by it with the contrast of such a rare stone and, and the Alexandrites on the sides of the stone. It was, uh, it was really an interesting piece. It was probably my favorite piece because as I mentioned, it's all about telling the story and there's so much story in that piece from a rare Grandidia right from Madagascar and then um, rare Alexandrites on the sides and how it, it kind of plays the greens and blues play with each other and cool lighting when you get to warmer lighting it's completely different the whole ring turns into this purplish red but the center stone stays green so just that story and the way that it looks in different lights was really amazing if you're a fan of podcasts you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible help spread the word please rate review and subscribe to the jewelry district on itunes or apple podcasts and now back to the show
the other thing I wanted to ask you about was the whole delegation from Botswana that arrived. And of course, I know that the president was honored at the Diamond Empowerment Funds, you know, Diamonds Do Good Gala Dinner. I attended. Um, he gave a big breakfast presentation that I slipped into a little bit late. That sort of show on mass of this huge delegation from De Beers' biggest diamond partner and you know the most important diamond producing country in the world was that kind of just happened to be this year? Was it some show of force to to say, "Hey, lab grown, you know, lab grown people were here and we're not going to take it"? I mean, what what was that? I think they they were there to deliver the message, which is that natural diamonds can have a beneficial impact on an economy, and specifically the Botswana economy. So I think there was definitely that aspect to it. But, you know, Botswana's had a lot of people at the show before, certainly in, in past years. And I, I think it's part of Botswana's desire to perhaps be a more independent entity in the market that Botswana wants to not only sell through De Beers, but sell on its own and take more control of its mineral resources. So I think there was a lot of just scoping out things, how things were, and and just kind of getting the lay of the land. I mean, these are, and, and I think it, I think it's really good in a way because you know, certainly when I started, there was this whole idea that, you know, you're a jeweler in, in the whatever in Main Street or, the you know, the middle of the United States. And then you have people in Africa who dig up the gems and, and market the gems. And the, 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 the two were very disconnected, right? Even though they're all part of the same industry and neither could survive without the other, there was this kind of huge separation between them because there's Obviously, there's a physical separation between them, but it's just that the, the two sides didn't necessarily communicate. And now, as the world is kind of getting smaller, you're starting to see more of a communication between American retailers and the people who produce the products that they sell. And I think that's good, and not everything they're going to find out is is maybe great, but I, I think it's good to have that dialogue, to have that communication, right? Because in the end, we're all part of the same industry. Right. And we couldn't survive without each other. And it's important for there to be that kind of dialogue and that that understanding of uh, where each other sits on the on the chain and what the what the issues are in all the respective sectors. So I think it, I think it's great to have more people involved in, in the mining side and not just the kind of corporate representatives of the mining side, but people who are involved in the countries and involved in the actual mining and production. And I believe you know, for all the kind of famous people, I mean, a lot of famous people over the years have come to the JCK show, but I believe this was the first head of state. As these mines grew, we prepared for the eventual closure. And that meant the best of environmental stewardship. Because, sadly, diamonds, and I mean diamonds, not anything else calling itself a bad diamonds. Our feelings. We will get a time where they are exhausted, but never will diamonds end. I mean, this guy's a real president. He had Secret Service, and I mean, it was kind of a big deal. And we learned he also cared. Because clearly, the very fact that you buy our diamonds 
is by itself an act of commitment to our country because wherever you are, in your stores, with your customers, you carry a bit of Botswana with you. Yeah, well, and, and now that you bring it up, I guess the protester that uh, appeared during his breakfast, I, I was there to capture it. I was standing kind of back in the in the back of the room, this big, huge ballroom. So, you know, the audio may not have been great, but it was interesting because it, you know, I think when you're in an audience where there is a president of a country speaking, you just feel a bit, you know, in, a bit in awe and you want to be respectful and you feel like, you know, you don't want to sort of show impertinence or anything. And then this protester popped up and it had to do with President Masisi's lifting of the ban on elephant hunting in Botswana earlier this year. I think it was sometime this spring. And it's not an issue I'm super familiar with, so I'm not going to go into the politics of it. But someone popped up. It was a woman. She was, I thought, brave because it's a brave thing to stand up in a room full of hundreds of people and demand answers from a, a president. also felt, again, impertinent and rude. And, you know, there was a sort of this discomfort in the crowd, even though I think she was speaking on behalf of a lot of people there and a lot of people in the world who are, you know, questioning this this decision and questioning the morality of it and the ethics. And anyway, it was an interesting moment. I thought President Masisi handled it gracefully. Convinced her to listen. And I will, I will talk to her and invite her to Botswana to come and see what we've done because we care. And she was led away eventually. She made her point. She she kept repeating her point, and I was impressed by her and then eventually also pleased when she <laughs> left the room. You know? A little annoyed by her too. Um, right, a little bit. I mean, only, but I, but I was impressed. I think it takes guts, and I felt a, like a little moment of drama. It wasn't, he handled it, I thought, very well. He didn't get angry. He handled it you know, as kindly as I think he should have. He he deserved to give, you know, she deserved his respect and, and he deserved hers. I'm not sure she gave him that much respect, but um, in any case, it, it it was a kerfluffle, but not a, not a, an egregious one, you know? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think the, apparently they had plans to ask that question right after the speech. So it's not like that particular issue would have gotten ignored. Um, it was weird timing because, you know, in all the years there's been the JCK show, there's never been any kind of real controversy over Botswana, right, in any way, mm. right? And then all of a sudden, one week before he comes to the JCK show, he lifts his ban, right, which uh, and, uh, apparently there were also protesters outside. I'm not 100% sure of that, but somebody said they did see people. I mean, it's obviously, it, it's a very emotional issue for, for people and and certainly for the people of Botswana who, you know, some of whom I guess feel threatened. You know, he handled it extremely well. He definitely talked about it for about 10 minutes and in that way it was an unfortunate because he was 
his speech about diamonds was very effective, and that's what most people were interested in. And then he ended up kind of getting sidetracked on this other topic, which is an important topic, certainly, but was not necessarily what he was there to address. You, were you at the Forever Mark breakfast? No, I had to attend a JCK meeting. So the, the first lady spoke at the Forever Mark breakfast, and I thought she was great. She was, she was in many ways even, an even better speaker. Than, mm. than he was. She was just very sincere and she came across as very warm and very appealing. And I, I think it's a different kind of politician. I think they both came across as extremely sincere people and very serious people and kind of made perhaps a little less self-aggrandizing sometimes than you see in American politicians. But they came across as oh, very yeah. direct. Yes, yes. They see, came across as very direct and, and sincere. And I think that was very effective. We have uh, Charles Stanley. Hello, Rob. Uh, Forever Mark USA for the podcast. So you guys uh, had a big breakfast. We did. We did. And That's right. What did you think of the first lady's uh, speech? She was absolutely inspirational. I thought she was fantastic. And I thought the way she told her life story, in effect, through diamonds and how diamonds had resulted in the achievements and successes that she was able to have, or rather perhaps the opportunities that they gave her, it was fantastic. The feedback I got from the, all our participants, our partners that were there, was, was that she was inspirational to them. And what do you think of the president's speech? Equally the same. Yeah. I mean, I, I daren't, of course, you know, mm-hmm. rate one against the other, Rob. Right, you must right, understand right. Yeah, that. <laughs> no, I thought the president was very measured, very clear mm-hmm. and deliberate in his delivery, um, very clear about the benefit clearly diamonds have given to Botswana, and importantly how they're also going to be their future, how they need to reinvest the the income they're getting from diamonds into their future. I thought that was really interesting. I like the through line that he made about how there's a little bit of Botswana sitting on everybody's fingers. Well, not perhaps everybody's fingers, but many many, uh, consumers' fingers here in the U.S. And there's that greater link between the two. I think he personally has really appreciated the opportunity, as he said, to come and see his customers. What should we be expecting from Forever Mark uh, for the rest of the year? Well, we got a brand new uh, bridal campaign, which Mm -hmm. we're very excited about and I think is very timely. I think, as I said in my breakfast presentation, we've seen a slight softening in bridal acquisitions and average price paid. Nothing serious, but enough to get us worried that led us to do some pretty in-depth consumer research that brought out insights that have demonstrated that relationships are moving on from where they were in the past and the role that diamonds play in marriage and engagement have moved on and so our new campaign is to try to be much more relevant to the current younger bridal consumer and I hope that in doing what we do we can lead everybody to making sure that we all actually in the end communicate to this vital demographic in a relevant way because in the end you know, um, the bridal category represents, what, 26% of the, the market value here for diamond jewelry in the U.S., and it's fundamentally the foundation of our business. And uh, so we're, we're speaking, I'm speaking to you right now yep. before a yep. forum on traceability. What kind of things are you going to talk about? Well, I'm certainly not going to talk about the underlying technology, Rob, because I know nothing about that. Right. But I will talk, I hope, about how it will provide a platform for people to 
build their stories and to give greater levels of confidence to consumers about where their diamonds have come from. So, Rob, we had a microphone. We walked around yeah. the show you know, when possible and just sort of snagged people and said, hey, how are you liking it here? What's going on? What do you, how are you finding the show? Did you, um, you know, how did you find those interviews? I did one with Ronnie Vanderlinden. He interrupted me. I was introduct. I was, in- I was introducing him and he interrupted me before I even got the inter- introduction out. So I thought that was kind of funny. You bet. Why aren't you family? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, Mr. Ronnie Vanderlinden, who's, I think he's president of every group ever established in the world, right? Well, thank you, Rob. I'm currently the president of the Diamond Manufacturers and Importers Association. Which is the U.S. group, right? Yes, and and the the international group as well, since you so kindly asked, and the United States Jewelry Council. Yeah, it was just nice to to have these quick little snippets, get the mood of the floor, uh, see what people were about. Absolutely thrilled. It is, to me... Personally, and I think everybody else, once you interview them, is so much more luxurious. You know, so it was, uh, people were on their feet, and, uh, you know, I don't think they were the, the deepest conversations, but it was a lot of fun. What, what was your impression? A few snippets. I had a few words with Eddie Levion at the tail end, at the very end of his um, annual red carpet review, and that was also cool. I think it's all about the value, the originality, the history, and the everlasting promise that they represent. But he also talked about the fundraising they'd just done, and they'd raised, I think, close to $500,000, including a sort of a spontaneous bid from a waiter who was in the audience at the fashion show and at, at the Le'Veon Red Carpet Review. So every Sunday of Vegas, Le'Veon stages a red carpet show that features trends and obviously showcases Le'Veon jewelry. And this year, it was notable because it was 20th anniversary of their Chocolate Diamonds collection, which is, of course, a groundbreaking new way to look at brown diamonds and now they're of course chocolate and every other sort of food they've been able to trademark anyway they raised money for a cancer charity because uh Le'Veon wanted I think it was Eddie's nephew who passed away a year ago or in the last year and so they were taking donations from you know companies and people in the audience including as as sort of I mentioned this waiter who popped up and was touched his father died of cancer and Honestly, it was very moving. And even as I talk about it, I'm moved because he basically gave 200 bucks. And this was unprovoked and, un, un, well, as far as I know, it definitely was not staged. And the whole room was crying. So honestly, Vegas oh. was, was um, had these moments that were very authentic, very emotional, very real. And it was very touching. So that was a, also a nice moment to be a witness to. Someone offered him a job, apparently. One of the, the waiter, companies yeah. in the room. Yeah, so apparently, um, hopefully that all does come to fruition. But apparently the waiter did get a job. And yeah, it was really very cool. We'll be writing about it in the July-August issue. So um, on that note, anything we've talked about here will actually be reviewed in our Best in Show feature and will be noted in the July-August issue that comes out in late July. So further info, please, you know, go online to our website, of course, and keep your eyes peeled for that beautiful best in show issue. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm just about recuperating from Vegas. And by the time I'm fully recuperated, it'll probably be time for next year's Vegas. So (laughs) no doubt. Great seeing everybody in the industry. And uh, we look forward to seeing them again. Yes, absolutely. Great seeing you, Rob. Great seeing the whole crew. And uh, to everybody who was there, it was, um, I hope, uh, hope you had a great show. And we look forward to seeing you in 2020. And congratulations to Merrick and to the waiter. 
Have you been have you been to the sands before? What do you think of the, the relocation back to the sands? Well, uh, I think it's good sometimes to go back to legacy. Right, right. And that's right. how it feels. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy to be here at JCK. Uh, I've had the opportunity to meet, you know, uh, many uh, retailers and uh, yeah, and learn and understand, you know, what is triggering uh, sustainability and uh, and what are the expectations for the consumer confidence. I feel the mood is up. Yeah. There are certain sections that they're favoriting than others, but especially I've been seeing more independence out here, mm-hmm. and which is very good. Yeah, I see it being a good show this year. Yeah, it was super, super fun. But I have to say that that the, if I'm not going to be X-rated here, I'll tell you that um, <laughs> the 20th anniversary over at Dow was super fun. Oh my God, what a beautiful venue. I was just blown away by the interior of that place. And then of course, like seeing all my buddies there was just so wonderful. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Levi Sharp. Our engineer is Brett Fuchs. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.